Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, March the 9th, 2017, and this is episode 1964 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday. That means it is time for listener calls. This is where you call the Think Line at 866-65-THINK. Or you go to the SpeakPipe. How do you get there? Go to the Survival Podcast and look for the SpeakPipe button in the center column. Click that. And if you have a microphone on your computer or using your mobile device, generally have a built-in microphone, you can leave me a message on the SpeakPipe. I will get an email. And either way, you might hear yourself on the show. And I have done a pretty good job of cleaning out the backlog of calls at this point. Uh, so if your call hasn't been played yet, it probably means it was old enough that it got filtered out. You might want to make a new call. But if you want to be on the show uh, for a call-in show, this would be a good time to get your calls in. What do we got today? Questions on the evil Emerald Ash Borer. Yes, uh, uh, advice now is cut down all the ash trees. And do I agree? As you might imagine, no, n not so much. Um, canning meat and following the procedure to the letter. A listener has a question about some meat he canned, and I'm going to tell him, throw it away. And we'll talk a little bit why it's so important when we get to that. Food storage in warm and humid climates today. More on running natural gas to your generator caller uh, can't called in. A follow-up to Stephen Harris's advice said, yeah, you can do this with Quick Connects, uh, and tells you exactly how. It sounds like he's got it down pat, and it is relatively safe. I will tell you why I still recommend you get a plumber to actually do it professionally for you. How to choose a car for your needs, a question on that. A question about organic food, is it really better for you than conventional? And an angry man has called in, very angry, and he's yelling at, the moderators on the Zello community for the Survival Podcast on my SpeakPipe. They don't get that message. So I'll play it on the air because I think the Zello crew will get a kick out of Caller 7 today. And then a question on determining revenue models for your blog slash online magazine, that type of thing. So lots of different stuff today with a little humor mixed in from an angry man who doesn't seem to understand. Well, sometimes, well you'll see it when it gets there. And uh, when I do that spot, I don't really have a lot to say other than, well, you'll see. But uh, I'll talk about how I won the Internet yesterday in a response to a comment on YouTube. Uh, all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1964, and it is a time of turmoil in America. We have Nonviolence Can Get You Killed, contributed by Alex Shrugged. We have the creation of Deacons for Defense, 
the side of the civil rights movement you never heard about by Southpaw Ben, and the fight for civil rights dominates, contributed by Alex Shrug. This is all at tspwiki.com, the TSP History, Survival, and Self-Sufficiency Wiki. Uh, I remind you guys, you can contribute to the wiki by registering and getting involved in editing and putting articles in and adding stuff. All that stuff is a duocracy. I don't know how. We have videos that show you how to do it. Notable births in the year 1964. Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon.com and fifth richest person in the world. Robert Duncan McNeil, Lieutenant Tom Paris on Star Trek Voyager. Michelle Obama, hmm, First Lady of the United States. I think that might be debatable. Uh, Anthony Weiner, congressman who tweets pictures of his manhood in talk. Adam Curry, Laura Ingram, Glenn Beck, and Adam Carolla all born this year. In comedy, Stephen Colbert, David Spade, Chris Farley, who died in 1997, age 33, from a drug overdose. Trisha Yearwood and Winona Judd born this year. In movies, Sandra Bullock, Nicolas Cage, and Keanu Reeves. Of course, Neo in the Matrix. Disney's Mary Poppins, who came to theaters this year, along with a fistful of dollars. Clint Eastwood's, Clint Eastwood's first spaghetti western. And uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, stop-action puppet animation. They had no idea it would become so popular. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, we still watch it every year in the Spearco household with the new grandkids, of course. The Beatles are dominating in music. I want to hold your hand. I feel fine in a hard day's night with a movie. House of the Rising Sun by the Animals, one of the best songs ever, as far as I'm concerned. And Oh, Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. In other news, bourbon is recognized as a distinctive product of the United States. Massachusetts has three senators, because Robert Kennedy moves from New York to run for U.S. Senate, becomes Massachusetts full up. He is a Massachusetts, he's called Massachusetts' third senator. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is passed. It ends segregation and discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or natural origin in public facilities and the workplace and equalizes voter registration requirements. Let's take a look at the creation of the Deacons of Defense because, as Southpaw Ben said, it is the side of the civil rights movement you probably never heard about. Originally called the Justice and Defense Club, the organization is formed in Jonesboro, Louisiana protect a freedoms, house, a freedoms House run by the Congress for Racial Equality that was being threatened by the KKK. The guards would carry concealed guns during the day and openly during the night to dissuade the Klan from attempting anything against the House. According to one former deacon in, a, deacon in a song lyric, the term deacons was selected to beguile local whites by portraying the organization as an innocent church group. The deacons were used by nonviolent groups such as the NAACP and Corps as low-key armed guards, allowing them to keep their appearance as nonviolent while still being able to defend themselves should the need arise and the police not intervene. One such example was early in 1965 when some black students picketing a high school were confronted by police and fire trucks. A car of deacons appeared and started peacefully loading their shotguns, causing the fire trucks to withdraw. They also caused Louisiana Governor uh, John McLeathan to intervene in Jonesboro's civil rights crisis, which was the first victory over a Deep South governor by the civil rights movement. My take by Southpaw Ben, when looking at how the deacons conducted themselves, as far as I have read, seemed to have been a great example of how to use force to help make change. They were able to not escalate situations, and their presence made anyone considering attacking protesters think twice before starting a conflict. 
their presidents helped allow peaceful protesters to reign peaceful and for places that were supporting the civil rights movement to avoid being vandalized or destroyed by the KKK. The deacons have lost prominence and gave way to the Black Panthers by 1968 who took the deacons' agenda and added an extremist and racist twist to it. This can also be seen as more proof that a revolution rarely, if ever, leads to further freedoms. While not truly a revolution, these groups are an interesting microcosm of how revolutionary groups go from moderate to extreme and end up as bad or worse than what they were replacing. Yeah. Um, it's also an example, to me, of how it doesn't have to go that way. This was a textbook example of armed force preventing the use of force by others. Um, in fact, I would say that I actually disagree with what Southpaw Ben said, the use of force. This was not the use of force. This was the acknowledgement that force exists if necessary. This wasn't even defensive force because the force was never applied by the deacons. They were just armed. You know, we're armed. If you attack us, then we feel the need to protect ourselves and we're able to do so. It's also an indication that things have changed in the United States. There's places where I guess this could still happen, but there's a lot of places where if you were to show up and start loading a shotgun uh, when uh, uh, police and fire trucks were going to stop a protest, you'd end up in a hard way for weapons violations. There's a lot of... The, the restrictions on firearms have yet to come. In fact, you haven't heard a lot about restrictions on firearms in the history segment yet. We did have the uh, the, the Firearms Act in the 1930s that, that did away with automatic weapons and all, but a lot of the stuff that prohibits or restricts weapons today or has been rescinded that used to came along a bit after this time in history, and we'll probably hear some about that. But the, the, the message here is people that are willing to do violence to, 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 to victims who, who are not doing anything aggressive except they just don't like them, the people that do that are generally not willing to do such violence when there's a risk to themselves because such people are effing cowards. The modern left today has taken the place of the modern right. I should say the modern extreme left today has taken the place of the modern extreme right. You'll notice that all the riots that occurred after the Trump election and things like that happened in cities like Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, California. You didn't see it happening in places like Fort Worth, Texas, now did you? Because the average citizen is armed and the cowards that do this shit and smash businesses that, by the way, supported their side because they're just that scumbaggish, they don't really want to deal with people who are able to defend themselves. They want to prey on the weak. They use numbers and fear and intimidation. But I bet you if a couple little boys were loading a shotgun and they were thinking about smashing some windows, they just might think twice about it. I'm not suggesting that we be armed for the purpose of intimidating people. I'm suggesting that the average American today should be armed so the people that would be the intimidator simply won't. That's what it sounds like the deacons were doing. Of course, when racist assholes come along like the Black Panthers or the KKK, they ruin everything. My take by Jack Spearco. 
All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today. Click on members to learn more and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. And with that, let's take the first call of the day. Yeah, Jack, this is uh, Tom in Connecticut. Uh, I'm calling because, you know, as I'm driving my car here, I'm listening to a podcast talking about chestnut play and how the recommendation was to cut down all the chestnut trees. And, you know, here in uh, Connecticut, we have a somewhat, it's almost a very similar situation with the emerald ash borer. So I have a property with uh, a lot of ash trees on it, uh, white ash. And the ash borer is spreading throughout the whole region and, and throughout the country. And the forestry people are recommending just basically cut them down. Uh, I was told that uh, you don't cut them down, they're going to be dead, and then they're worthless anyway, so cut them down for uh, lumber if you can. Uh, so I was wondering what your opinion was on that, because right now the recommendations are, generally speaking, cut the ash down before the ash borer kills it. And will we find a resistant species to the ash borer? Uh, I don't know, but that's uh, just your thoughts on that. Thanks. Well, I think that advice is, is equally stupid um, as the advice to cut down the chestnut trees was uh, during the chestnut blight. And, of course, the timber companies, uh, because most of the chestnut in the United States was uh, just spread through the wilderness uh, during that. It wasn't like they were cutting down a bunch of chestnut trees in people's backyards. So the, the timber companies just got a license to go out on all this public land and all these large-ranging private pieces of land and cut you know millions of dollars worth of timber and, and pay nothing to go get it. So that's a big reason that that happened. There's also the stupid stupidity of, we'll save the trees by killing them all. Um, here's the deal. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that there were full... 100% American chestnuts out there that had the genetics to be resistant or at least highly resistant, if not immune, to chestnut blight. And by cutting all of it down, we were unable to find those survivors. I'm almost as sure that there are probably some ash trees out there that would be highly resilient against the borer. And only by letting them live and determining which ones survive this onslaught will we find the ones that are resistant. So if we go cut them all down, we'll ensure that we don't find the ones that have a resistant gene. Now, like so many problems that we have, this ash borer is an invasive species. It comes from uh, uh, the Far East, basically. And it, it eats ash trees there the same way. 
Uh, but it's never been considered that big of a pest there, that big of a problem, kind of like many things in their native habitats are. Um, one of the reasons is probably that in a native stand of trees, you have these different clumps of, and dominant ash dominates here and it doesn't dominate there and what have you like this, where the majority of the ash that we have in the northeastern United States where this is getting hit the hardest and it's moving west from there is, you know, one big old ash tree sitting out in the back of somebody's yard like a, a freaking giant dinner bell magnet and every boar on the planet Uh, near that area, zones in and hits that one tree, and then when it's gone, they hit another tree. And they're not in a mixed deciduous forest type of situation in a true natural polyculture. That's, that's probably part of the problem. Well, here's how I look at this. If I had a huge ash tree, and I was starting to see the ashes around me get hit, And I know that if I let them completely kill it, they're going to ruin the timber value of the tree. And if that tree is relatively easy to remove as a timber tree, and I could make a couple thousand bucks off of it or more, then I might think about removing that tree. But if I have the way most of these trees are, where they're going to be taken out in pieces and parts, and they're not really going to have a huge timber value to them, I'm going to leave that tree there and see if it survives. See if it can make it through the attack. Because if I have the survivor, that's the genetics we want to continue to produce. And I also look at it this way. The, the reason this is a problem is that so many of them were planted as a lollipop tree in a backyard or a front yard. Because they became in vogue. And it happens with all different types of trees. And almost every time it happens, that particular species of tree ends up with a problem. Not necessarily a problem like an ash borer, but one thing or another leads to that tree uh, having a massive depopulation. Because it was, it was planted in a way it was never meant to be. And if you go to a hardwood forest and find native ash trees growing in them, what you won't find is a thousand acres of ash trees. You'll actually find them being the minority hardwood in hardwood forests. There'll be a, a, a bunch of oaks and there'll be a, you know, maybe some scabby looking hang on, uh, compassing chestnut or chinga pin or something like that and maples and there's an ash tree here and an ash tree there and they're kind of assorted here and there. They're not in like these big, you know, monocultures the way they are in suburbia. There are places where that are being hit now where every freaking house has an ash tree in the front yard. It happens here in Texas, it, not really with pests, but just at, at a certain point, they just start to fall apart with Bradford pears. I'm going to bet that sooner or later in the South, we have some pest that just decimates the shit out of Bradford pears because the same thing was done with it. It grew fast, it has flowers, it doesn't produce fruit and make a mess, and everybody and their mother planted one because they were cheap and all the box stores had them. And almost every time that happens, there's a point at which there, there's going to be a secession. Something is going to change. It's not always going to, the earth is not supposed to be in stasis. And, and it's not really we find something resistant to the ash borer. What will naturally be the replacement that will work for human beings? And I ask you this. Sure, I love the thought of a big ash tree, but what does it really provide us other than timber and shade? And, you know, the, the place a tree plays in the ecosystem. What if we see this as an opportunity as ash trees get hit and we take them out? What if every ash tree that went away was replaced by a tree that produced something edible through that corridor? Might it actually be a benefit long term? And you might find 
that as ash begins to regrow, the borers are not so much of a problem anymore. It seems like these ash borers don't really seem to attack young ash trees. They attack older ash trees that have been around a long time, and maybe you need to make room for something else to come along, and some of it will be ash and some of it won't. Almost like nature knows what it's doing. It's very similar to the fungus, the blue fungus beetles in Colorado and 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 the West. You, you never see the fungus beetles killing pine trees that are as big around as your forearm. They're killing pine trees and changing things as they go, and they're not an invasive species. I don't I don't think the blue fungus beetle is invasive. I think it's a native species uh, in that particular instance that we're acting like is, uh, is, is some sort of a, is an invasive pest because it's doing something we don't like. In the end, nature tends to work itself out, and we can help it along, but we generally can't stop it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Aaron from Western North Carolina. I have a question about canning meat. A couple weeks ago, I canned some pork and some London broil and just realized that I didn't follow the recipe exactly and I canned it 10 minutes versus the recommended 115 and so I'm wondering if I need to discard it and start over or if it'll be fine uh, I'd like to get your comments on that love your show your show's helped change my life for the better keep it up okay so here's a place where technology might be playing a trick on me and I'm not sure if you said there's a there was a, a fade out in there And it sounded like you said you can this meat for 10 minutes. And the recipe called for 115 minutes. And what should you do? If that's what you said, you should throw it the F away because it is a high likelihood uh, that it, it is going to be a botulism nightmare and kill you. Now, if you said 110 versus 115 minutes, I wouldn't even worry about it. Now, I always suggest that you follow a recipe to the letter that's known to be safe when you're canning anything, but especially low-acid stuff and things especially like meats. Because we're not playing around with just some things that can make the food taste bad or make you sick. We're playing around with botulism when we go low-acid. And if we screw up with botulism, it can kill you. Uh, the botulism itself isn't the problem. It's the botulism as it reproduces, releases a toxin, and that toxin is the, the most toxic poison on the planet to human beings. It will kill your ass dead in, in, in relatively small amounts. Now, here's the good news about it. People say, well, boiling doesn't kill botulism. Boiling, however, does drive off botulism toxin, and boiling anything for about 10 minutes is going to make it safe. So if you weren't completely sure you were safe, you could simmer that meat at a low boil for 10 minutes when you take it out of the can, and you should be just fine, assuming you did everything else right. But by God, if you said 10 minutes, get rid of that shit, you cannot safely pressure can meat in 10 minutes. The other thing is, you, you, I hope you pressure can it. You do not water bath can meats in any low acid food. They have got to be pressure canned. Now here's why I'm comfortable telling you that you can do 110 minutes instead of 115, because I can find recipes for doing canned meats at 110 minutes. So this just happens that this recipe is a little bit longer. You need to also make sure, though, 
if you are at higher elevations, you are canning at the proper pressure because you have to go to higher pressures to get the same temperature of steam when you're above you know, certain elevations. So make sure you're always that. Always follow a known recipe to the letter. And I like to, whenever I'm doing meats or soups or stews, I like to always do a hot, Uh, hot pack canning method, personally. Uh, with a recipe that long, I'm imagining you did a raw meat can, which is okay, um, but I prefer to do you know a brown, cook the meat through, and hot pack can meats myself. Um, but I, I would say if it was 110 versus 115 and everything else is fine, since there are other recipes that are known to be safe for that type of canning at 110, you're probably good. In the future, whatever recipe you're using, stay tight to it. But if you're talking 10 minutes, get rid of it before it kills you. Because it'll kill you dead if it's infected with botulism. And botulism, as toxic as it is, is one of the most common uh, organisms on the planet. It's pretty much everywhere. It just needs a special environment to reproduce. And when it reproduces, it's when it makes that icky toxin. A good standard practice is to always, you know, boil any canned good uh, for 10 minutes uh, if it is a low-acid canned good. And, and one of the reasons, there's no reason not to do that, if it's been canned, it's already been cooked to shit anyway. You know, you're already talking like stew-quality meat or something like that where it's really soft. So you're not going to hurt it by, by simmering it for 10 minutes. So that's really a best practice as a final safeguard, and if you do that, you're going to be just fine. And don't let anybody tell you that a real pressure canner, electric pressure canner, is not sufficient to do this stuff with. Now, I only know of two. One is the Carry, uh, the Carry brand canner that I recommend, and the other one is the Power Pressure Cooker XL. All the rest of them are not pressure electric pressure canners. They're electric pressure cookers. There is a difference. Those are the only two I know that their manufacturers warranty and say, yes, this is safe for pressure canning. And all the people afraid of it, stop being afraid of it because there'd be a class action lawsuit by now if there was any reason to be afraid of it. And you'd find at least one person that made themselves sick or killed themselves with it, and there's zero because... Steam at pressure creates the same temperature regardless of how we create the heat that makes the pressure happen. Just saying. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, how's it going? My name is Ruben out of South Florida. My question is about uh, storing food for prepping purposes. I've listened to your show for a while. I've gone to some forums, but living in Florida, I find that shelf life for food is very short for us. Is there any recommendations you can give me for constructing a cabinet in my garage being that I have no space inside the house to store food? Thanks and I look forward to your answer. Have a good day. Okay, so we have to take a couple different ways of looking at this. So let's talk about what the enemies of food storage are. Heat, moisture, and light. We can keep it dark, dry and cool, it lasts longer. That simple. When you go in your refrigerator, it's pretty dry in there. It's dark when you close it and the light goes out. And you, you open it, did it go out? And, you know, <laughs> That's a good game to play with stupid people. Are you sure the light's out? Why don't you check? <laughs> anyway, go look at that window when you get done. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, it's dry, it's cool, the food lasts longer. Here's the problem. You live in a place where it's wet and hot. All the time. So your, your, your garage is far from optimal 
for food storage. So these are the two choices you can, you can take. One would be you could get yourself one of those cool bots we talk about from time to time here, and you could build yourself a cold room. And uh, you wouldn't even have to build it. You wouldn't even have to run that that high efficiency AC unit powering it to you know drive it down to something like uh, you know 40 degrees or 38 degrees or something that's capable of it. Might be not if y'all went through all that trouble. I would, um, but you don't have to, and you're gonna have a nice, fairly dry, cool, dark environment. And uh, your your you know shelf stable foods will store very very long time in that type of environment, but it's going to cost you quite a bit of money. I don't really have a better solution for you. It's easy to dig a hole in Florida because almost everything is sand and it immediately fills up with water because the water table is pretty high. So you don't find a lot of basements and cellars in Florida. So if you have any way you can do something like that and you know maybe probably not in the in the garage but in like a backyard to build like a poor man's root cellar or something like that it may be worth doing i've seen people take like you go on craigslist and you find yourself like an old um uh, like worn out uh, like a refrigerator or a chest freezer or something like that. You dig a hole and sink that sucker in the ground and then cover it over and then you store food in there. It's going to be much cooler and much drier in something like that, especially if you provide some sort of ventilation for it and your food would store longer, though it's not probably what you're looking to do. And the problem, again, in Florida with sand and water, it's probably the first big rain going to float up out of the ground on you. So that's probably not a good idea either. So is there anything we can do? Well, here's what we can do. Uh, we're, we're not going to be able to long-term store a whole shitload of food for the apocalypse without a heavy rotation going on with it in that environment of hot and humid. And if you're already experiencing problems with the shelf life of your food, moving it into the garage is not going to make it any better. But what we could do is get into a high rotational frequency. So we could set up basically our deep pantry out in the garage, and anything we can do to keep it cooler or drier would be beneficial. One way that we could do this very, very efficiently is we could build ourselves this pantry into the garage, highly insulated, and insulate the freaking floor. That's what everybody forgets about. Don't don't build a false floor with 2x4s and put the insulation on the 2x4s. Put foam board insulation right down on the concrete. It's cheap, so do two or three freaking layers of it, and then put your floor on that and build your pantry. If there's a place in the garage where we can make a penetration, And we can take air from the cooled house and bring it into that highly insulated place, even if we're not putting the door on the inside, right? So it's the doors in the garage side, but it's closed and it's you know sealed, and then we're letting the cool air from the house go into there. There, that would be a way we could do that. If we can't do that, all we can do is set up whatever food stores we can in there. You need to get yourself a, a food journal, which is basically a 75-cent notebook from the store, and you need to put it on your countertop. And This is what I say everybody should do anyway. And you need to write down every single shelf-stable item that you use in your daily food use. And every time you use it again, put a star next to it. Do that for a month or two. And then take items that are of that high-frequency rotation and store those in the garage and get in the habit of treating that pantry like a grocer treats his grocery store. 
meaning we take from the front and we pull everything from the back to the front and new items go in the back. So we are into an automatic rotation. That's probably the best thing that you can do. And I would also say if it's shelf-stable storables that don't have to be refrigerated or frozen, they don't degrade that bad due to heat and to humidity. When I was a, a young kid, one of my first jobs was I worked at a grocery store called the Economy Grocery Store in Minersville, Pennsylvania. And all of the shelf-stable stuff was kept up in an attic, and there was a freight elevator that went up there, and it was hot as shit up there in the summer. And it was pretty humid. Pennsylvania, people don't think of it as hot and humid, but Pennsylvania summers are hot and humid. And there was never a problem or customers complaining about the quality of the food, but it was a grocery store, so there was a relatively high frequency of restocking. But I was the stocker for the whole store, uh, especially for all of the non-dairy. like dairy. I did dairy and stuff once in a while, but mostly if it was on the shelf, instead of in, if it wasn't produce or dairy, I was probably the person that stocked it for about a three- or four-month period there uh, as, as a teenager. And uh, I can tell you some of that stuff spent quite a bit of time before enough of it sold to get it all out of there and, and reordered. And, and it wasn't that bad. So if you're actually using it, and I would just look at this. If I was storing stuff in a Florida garage and it had a, a, a storage date one year out, I, I would say that, that you might cut that in half from an And remember, it's not bad. It's just not optimal anymore. It might lose some texture or flavor or quality. So what you might want to do is make sure that anything you're using out there, you can use at about half of the recommended shelf life date. So if it's three months, you want to keep a one-and-a-half-month quantity, right? If it's six months, you want to keep a three-month quantity of that item. And with that high rotation, and then your stuff that is longer-term storage, we can store more of that in the house. Consider things that you can do in the house that people forget about, like that space under your bed, rubber-made bins that will slide under there, things like that. You can take more of your true long-term storables and store them there. Hopefully that helps you. But remember, all you're really looking for for food storage maximization, cool, dry, and dark. Because light, heat, and moisture are the enemies of your food storage program. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Brad from Southern California. I uh, love the show. Um, this is a comment uh, related to the expert council uh, on February 10. Stephen Harris took a uh, question about using Quisk quick connects uh, for a, uh, a natural gas generator. Uh, I have a way of using quick connects uh, for that generator and, and being able to do that uh, instead of your barb fittings. Uh, I use a uh, brass 3 8 uh, pressure washer quick connect fitting. They're very strong, they're non-sparking, and they have a straight through design. So you have full port through that quick connect fitting. I also use a um, locking ball valve. Uh, they're stainless steel, about 20 bucks on Amazon. It's well worth the price. They're going to work for the rest of your life. You can put a little padlock on there, and if you have little ones in the house like I do, there's no one who's going to accidentally turn that on. You can take that lock off when you need to, and you'll be the only one in control of that valve. Uh, uh, that is uh, the best way to do that, and then you can uh, have your generator set up in five minutes or less on that uh, rainy day, and I recommend non-sparking uh, brass or, or something like that. Um, just uh, in the off case, and you throw that hose out into the backyard, 
you don't want to hit something steel and uh, and uh, cause a spark. Thank you, sir. Love the show. Bye. Okay, that all sounds like very well thought out, good advice, and I can't fault it for what it is. And that's why I played it because there's sometimes things that I don't necessarily think that you should do, um, but. It's good to know how to do them if you have to do them, and maybe you're in a situation where you just can't afford any other way and you're willing to take the risk and all. But this is how I feel. Steve ended his call uh, last week or his segment last week about this, about running. Now we're talking about running natural gas that's grid-tied to your house, to your generator. And he said the best thing you can do is simply have a plumber come out and run a properly coated and and everything done uh, you know by the book line to wherever you need to set your generator pay the money and get that done i believe that's good advice too i'm huge on developing skill sets and knowledge and doing things and learning things and trying and i'm the the guy that always says if you f it up as long as no one dies or no one ends up in the hospital who really gives a shit you've learned how not to do it well now we're talking about something where if we do it wrong we can end up with somebody in the hospital or somebody dead or a freaking house blown to smithereens and i'm going to tell you that about a year and a half two years ago i don't remember exactly when there's a house that was about a mile and a half as the crow flies from this house it's not there anymore because it exploded I don't mean it, it blew a hole in the roof. I mean, boom, no house. Nothing left. The, the pieces were scattered to where you couldn't even tell there was a house there. You didn't know what it was. And it was some kind of gas malfunction where the house basically was, you know, filled up with a perfect gas-air mixture when it went off. Fortunately, no, no people uh, died in it because the homeowner wasn't home and no one was close enough to the house to be killed. Uh, unfortunately, the homeowner had four dogs that were inside the house, and that kind of hurts my heart to think of a dog dying that way. Uh, but that's the risks. So if you are a plumber, if you work with gas all the time, you know, if you feel comfortable with this, that's one thing. If you have any doubt about your abilities when you're working with something that can kill you, I recommend you get a professional. I'll work on electrical stuff. Right, but when it comes to to the actual stuff that's tied into like circuit breakers and shit like that, I don't do that. I'll pay someone else to do it. Why? I'm not 100% confident in my abilities, and it can kill me. I do things all the time that I'm not 100% confident in my abilities, and I work through it. I figure it out as I go, and I get it done. If I'm going to do something, I'm not 100% confident in my abilities that can kill me or hurt me or kill or hurt somebody else. Right? Then I'm going to get professional help to teach me so I'm competent, or I'm going to pay somebody to do it for me. I also follow that rule with things that could screw up, like the property value of my home. I'll do work on my house myself. If it's something that if I do it wrong, it could just be done over, or I could pay somebody to do it like I should have done in the first place, and all I'm at is whatever I paid on it. If I'm going to screw it up, and it's going to cost two or three times as much to fix as it would have in the first place, and it would be something that would damage my exit strategy for my property should I ever need to sell my home, I'm going to bring a professional to do it in the first place. These are just common sense things of knowing your limitations, and we all have a big limitation on our time. So if we're going to give up our temporal limitation to something, it should be something we can maximize, and we'll flip that around and say, when we can't maximize our time, that's the time to hire someone to do it for us. That's just a good lifestyle planning principle. Let's take another one. Hey, TSP. Getting a new vehicle seems like a real threat to self-independence. 
in terms of maintenance and repairs, etc. What vehicle do you recommend and what guidelines do you recommend for buying one? Here's an answer that's going to surprise most people when I say it. All of them. I recommend them all. Especially when we're talking about new cars. You think I'm kidding, don't you? No, I'm a big fan of a local guy that's on our radio here on the weekends named Ed Wallace. Ed Wallace has been in the car business since the early 70s. Ed Wallace developed an Internet-based car shopping tool where you pick your color out and do all that shit like you do now so long before the car industry figured out to do it that they laughed at him when he said, here it is. That's how, that's how long Ed Wallace has been around in cars and how right he's been all along. And I listen to his show on, 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 on weekends here on AM radio if I happen to be in my truck or I'm working outside or something like that because I really like what he has to say. He also has a segment that's very similar to what we do, but it's different. It's the same but different, man. Some of you know where that's from. It's the same but different, man. Um, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> should I play it? <laughs> should I? I, I think I should. I'm, I'm going to play it, and then I'll be right back. Yeah, right there. Okay, let's try it. Mexican-Americans don't like to just get into gang fights. They like flowers and music and white girls named Debbie, too. Mexican-Americans are named Chata and Chela and Chema and have a son-in-law named Jeff. Mexican-Americans don't like to get up early in the morning, but they have to, so they do it real slow. Mexican-Americans love education, so they go to night school and they take Spanish and get a B. Mexican-Americans love their nanas and their nonos and their ninas and their ninos. Nanu, nanu, nina, no, no. Mexican-Americans don't like to go to the movies where the dude has to wear contact lenses to make his blue eyes brown. Cause don't it make my brown eyes blue? And that's all I got. How do you like it? Oh, that's good. That's yeah, good. it's like a protest tune, man. Yeah, I, I dig that, man. Yeah. But you know, while you were singing that, I, I wrote another tune. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's like the same thing, only different. You know? Do you want to hear it? Yeah, yeah. It's like a little it. more rock and roll. All than right, that, we'll know? get down. It's something like this here. Americans like to answer telephones and say hello to whoever's on the other end. Beaners, it's a tonto. Beaners gonna eat beans. That, folks, was from a Cheech and Chong uh, movie. I believe it was called Cheech and Chong's Next Movie. It came out in the 80s. It's from my childhood, and it's fun to bring some pop culture in once in a while. There's a little less in there, too, right? Because... This is back when you could make a movie without freaking offending anybody. I mean, this is enough. But could you imagine uh, making Blazing Saddles or something like that today? I mean, can't we just get back to offending everybody and having a laugh about it? Anyway, on the car thing. So I was saying that the, 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 this Ed Wallace cat I listened to, he does this backside of history thing, and it's like 
you know, our history segment. It's the same but different, man. And uh, but he also is just a fantastic source of information on cars. And and I will hear at least two or three times a week when I'm listening, someone will call in and say, Ed, I'm looking for an SUV, and I'm between this one, this one, and that one. Which one should I buy? And his response is, well, they're all fine. You should buy the one you like best. And he has a, 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 a slogan that it's not really a slogan, but it's become one. How many of them you see? How many of them have you seen on the side of the road? In other words, how many of them just break down in the middle of traffic and end up on the side of the road? So I think that when it comes down to it, we should be buying the vehicle that fits us personally best. So, for instance, I drive a somewhat older uh, F-350 diesel truck. Why? It fits my needs perfectly. I have to haul heavy shit short distances to my farm. I don't put a lot of miles on it with a diesel and uh, not putting a lot of miles on it. The truck will probably fall off the, the, the frame before the motor gives out in it. So that fits. Would I recommend that someone that drives like I use 255 miles both ways uh, to work every day, 110 miles a day, buy my diesel truck? Unless you're hauling really heavy shit and getting paid good for it, no. Why not? Because it's going to kill you in gas costs. So what did I drive back back then? 2006.5 Jetta diesel TDI. Do I recommend that as a car for everybody? No. Not just because. Volkswagen cheated on the emissions because I really don't give a damn about that at all anyway. Uh, but because that's a small car and it, 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 it only has so much cargo capacity and it is relatively expensive for repairs and maintenance. It uses uh, five quarts of a synthetic oil that'll, that'll take your oil change from a $20 oil change to an $85 to $90 oil change. But when you're driving 110 miles an hour, a day with it, and uh, you, you're getting 44 to 46 miles to the gallon with it, you can afford the freaking oil changes, especially since you only do them every 10,000 miles. You kind of see where I'm going here. Now, I do think when you've determined the type of vehicle that you want, looking at the repair and maintenance costs of them should be one of the determining factors over which vehicle you buy. For instance, there was a time I was in the market for a car. I wanted kind of a sportier car. And I don't remember exactly what. It was something by Pontiac, I believe. It was a really nice, sporty-looking car. And I was between that and uh, Dodge, I don't even remember what they were called, but uh, kind of a Dodge sporty sedan. And when I looked at the cost of repairs, the, the Pontiac, if that's what it was, had struts in it. That would you just knew they were going to go out at about eighty thousand to a hundred thousand miles, and this car had like seventy thousand miles on it, and they were something like eight hundred dollars a piece. And I started looking at the cost of parts for that, and everything was expensive compared to the other vehicle that I eventually bought. Intrepid, I think that's was a Dodge Intrepid. Uh, and it wasn't as sporty, it wasn't as cool, but it it, it had a lot less. Uh, ongoing costs going on with it, which was important to me, especially at that time in my life. So I think that's the thing to look at. If you want a vehicle you can work on yourself, you know, a 70s or 80s model V8 pickup truck uh, is probably, if you can find one that's not completely tore to shit, that's the thing. You know, but those, those 80s models V8s, Pretty good. 70s, even better. I mean, the best was like 65 to 69. The, the stuff, there was, there was none of the smog equipment and all that shit on it. But, I mean, you're talking about a pretty old vehicle at this point. But 
I don't think we should live with this this vision of the apocalypse and making decisions about what vehicle we have as a daily driver. If you want to take, I mean, honestly, one of the best things out there for working on yourself is the uh, military cut Vs. We've talked about them before. Uh, the 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 blazers and the pickup trucks they're both fantastic and you can pretty much throw a toolbox on the back and want to put you know ten of the most common parts that wear out maybe twenty if you include belts and hoses and stuff like that a technical manual a basic mechanics kit in there and you can get that thing running just about ninety nine percent of the time anything goes wrong with it and there's a book that tells you every damn thing that can go wrong with it. it's built for a soldier to use so you know it's easy to use um, but when it comes down to a daily driver. What did I put my son into? I put my son in a Nissan Altima. He wanted kind of a sporty, entry-level-looking car that looked nice, and an Altima in black looks good. But why did I put him into that? Because when I went down there and beat the shit out of the sales manager on the floor, I got him a three-year lease with $1,000 down and $129 a month to drive a brand-new car, a brand-new car with a warranty for three years. He's... Got to have the ability to get to work and back every day. He's got a new baby. He's got a grandson. But leases are terrible. Did you hear what I just said? Did you flip in hear what I just said? $129 a month. And at the end of the lease, if he wants to do something else, he hands them the keys and walks away as long as you didn't go over his mileage or mess the car up. So would I recommend that for you? I don't know. But here's what I'm going to tell you. There are no bad cars out there today 99% okay i mean the cadillac with the stupid motor with the starter and the uh the what well, i can't remember what they got the north star motor yeah that is stupid because if you need a new starter you got to tear the freaking motor half apart to put a starter motor in it um and it, it is it is probably one of the last shitty things that's come out of the major car manufacturers but all of them are good And in general, you get better when you pay more. Freaking Kia. Remember when Kia came out? When Kia came out, the freaking door panels were actually cardboard. They were cardboard. Like, if the inside of your car got wet, your door panel could, like, come apart like cardboard. Kia makes a decent car today. The luxury model Kias are unbelievable. I can't, the Kia makes a car, I can't remember what they call it. It's like, it's kind of like Toyota makes Lexus, that type of thing. Uh, Brilliance or something like that. It is a $60,000 car from Kia that puts $80,000 Mercedes's to shame with what it delivers. They're all making good cars. Find what works for you so you determine your type. Does an SUV work for you? If so, a smaller one or a larger one, a pickup truck, a passenger car, right? You find what works for you, and then you find the vehicles in that class, and all the manufacturers make a vehicle in just about every class. You look through those, you pick the one that you can get the best terms on and the best cost of ownership on if you're buying a new vehicle. If you're buying an old vehicle, you should know what your mechanical abilities are, and you buy something that fits those abilities. But... Really think hard before you do that, unless it's like a project car, an extra car, something like that. Because, again, you're talking about cars that are 30, 40 years old now. You know, you start thinking about, like, you know, a 70, 1970 model car. When I was a kid in high school, that car's 15 years old. It had a lot left in it if it had been taken care of. But I saw a lot of 15-year-old cars that were falling apart. And I see a lot of 15-year-old cars now that are in damn good shape with 200,000 miles on them. 
They say they don't build them like they used to. It's true, because today, believe it or not, they build them better. They're just more complicated to service. That's just the reality of it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Jesse from Maryland. Uh, we were at a local plow day, and at the end of the event, they had free food, some of it labeled organic and all that. Well, the one of the local farmers was just kind of laughing to himself about the whole organic thing and how it was ridiculous. Just wondering what you thought about it. Thanks. Bye. Well, on some levels, that old farmer may have a legitimate point. He just probably doesn't know what it is. And his probably view is, is no, their food's no better than my food in any way, shape, or form, which is flat wrong. Um, and when it comes to organic, it depends. When you're looking at something like an organic vegetable product, it, it, it probably is a lot better for you because it's not bad for you. There's the belief that if it's an organically produced pepper, for instance, compared to a conventionally produced pepper, that it's better for you because it's better quality uh, from a standpoint of nutrition and things like that. Those two peppers probably have very little to negligible to no difference in nutritional value. Probably have about the same amount of calories, probably about the same amount of vitamins and minerals, all that stuff. And, and in most of the supermarkets, it's probably not that great. Hey, okay? organic people are pissed at me now. I'm just telling the truth, guys. You can't be pissed at me for the truth unless you don't like the truth. And then you should be pissed at the truth and not the person speaking it. However, the pepper that's conventionally uh, produced, peppers are, I, I chose, for example, because they're one of the most pesticide-infused plants out there. They spray the shit out of them with pesticides. It's not that the organic pepper's better as a pepper. It's better as a pepper in the absence of herbicides and things like that that are thrown on top of the plant. So we're not ingesting those types of pesticides. There are some things that can be used as pesticides in organic production that are kind of nasty too, but they pass through organic mustard, but they're still never as bad as the stuff that's used in conventional farming. So there you go. Now, when it comes to animals, this is where things get a little bit more gray. You could be eating organic chicken, and if you walked into the chicken house, that chicken was grown, and it might be just as disgusting, or at least close to as disgusting, as a chicken grown by Purdue or by Tyson. Because we can just basically not use any types of uh, certain things that the chickens ingest and we can feed them organic feed and we can call it organic. That doesn't mean that the chicken got to go out and pasture and be free ranged. And in many instances if you have a pastured poultry producer that due to cost considerations is feeding conventional feed, but that bird's on pasture and getting 30 to 35% of its diet from pasture and insects and scratching and things like that, his product will be superior to the organic chicken that's factory farmed organic. So it all depends. There's organic farmers that are really doing beyond organic, and they have the organic label because they qualify for it, and it helps them sell product at a premium. It, it, it's, it's one of those things that really just depends. And, and I think we need to temper that. I had a person that's listening, watching the Duck Chronicles, which, by the way, I put out episode 8 today, that said she went back and started watching season 1 of the Duck Chronicles. We're in season 3 now as I'm raising these, these ducks. And she said the biggest thing she learned from season one is that you could have a factory farm that is an organic factory farm. And didn't have any idea, and she feels scammed now. It's not really a scam. What we're saying is that the bird has not been given certain medications or chemicals as preventatives, and they've been fed an all-organic diet. So he's buy organic feed and feed the bird organic feed. It lays an organic egg. You see how that works. Now, here's 
the a little bit more good for organic. You cannot, in the absence of some of these 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 chemicals and medications and things like that, put the animal into as bad a situation and not have catastrophic losses of life. So especially when you're looking at something like eggs, uh, you know, for growing chickens for meat, and we say it's organic, that chicken only has to be around for about eight to nine weeks because it's both Cornish cross birds, right? That's all it takes to grow them out. We can be pretty abusive and get a pretty good survival rate in that eight to nine week period. But if that bird's going to be around for six months before it, it shits an egg out of its butt, And then it's going to be around for another, you know, year of laying. And usually at 18 months, they cull those birds. Um, then, then, and it's going to be organic. It can't live in some of the levels of stocking density and, 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 and walking in its own crap and things like that that a commercially farmed bird can because it won't survive. So that forces organic producers to do some things better. And again, some organic producers are way above anything you could ever buy from conventional growers. And then there's factory organic, and that's a different thing. And it doesn't mean that the people that are part of the system are being treated better. Most of your organic carrots are grown in Baja, Mexico, and the laborers down there that are doing it are being treated like slave serfs. Uh, and you don't have to be a, uh, in America as a, as a Mexican to be treated like a slave picking produce. In fact, you, you be treated worse in Mexico doing it, and they are. That's why they come here and pick our produce instead. Don't think there's no produce to pick in Mexico. And you go down to where they're growing these carrots in Baja, Mexico, and they're, they're, they're pumping fossil aquifers out of water to grow carrots in the desert, so it's not environmentally friendly either. Does that mean an organic carrot has to be that? No, but it means most of them on the store shelves are. They still have less pesticides and are probably still better for you. So you have to make these decisions based on a total knowledge of what you're buying and what the alternatives are. This is my personal choice, right? This is how, I, and I can't do everything the way I want it, so I have to make compromises as I go along. First choice is I grew it in my own backyard, okay? We're making a conversion aquaponics. We're not producing anywhere near as much as we used to. So until that gets up and running, I'm buying more. Next best is buy local. Not a lot of it available, believe it or not. There really isn't in this area. Um, it is a tough environment to garden in, and to garden at a market garden level is, is, is difficult here. This is a tough climate. So there's not as much of it here. And Dallas is one of the worst cities in America for farmers markets with their regulations. It's just stupid. So there's not a lot of it, but what it's here, I'll buy local next. And I don't care if the person's feeding the chicken that I'm buying, conventional feed, I'll still buy that before I'll go buy an organic chicken from Costco. Okay, But if I can't get the chicken locally, then I would buy an organic product from the store. And then if I can't find an organic product from the store, then I would buy conventional. That's kind of my hierarchy in the way that I think. And the more good quality food and the less toxins we put in our body, the better our body can do. But I don't over-worry about toxins either. I really try to stay away from any GMOs because most of them are sprayed with Roundup and things like that. And that's just toxic soup. But, I mean, I'm not worried about every toxin because breathe in, breathe out, 55,000 toxins roughly just went through your body, and your body has defenses against them and ways of eliminating them. 
Just don't over, you know, over worry, I guess. And, and on that note, we'll talk about that a little bit after we hear from, uh, an angry man. Very angry. He's angry at Oxymoron and somebody else on the Zello channel because he thinks there's a Jack Spirico cult and they threw him out of it. Yeah, I'm serious. Here you go. Good job, Oxymoron. Good job. Good job, Leo, for blocking me. Um, very protective. Sounds just like not a cult, right? Yeah, right. Um, I never even said that Jack wasn't was a cult, necessarily a cult leader. I said people like him are. And if you keep throwing Jack at me, as far as, well, I didn't read this and I didn't read that, it's just a difference of opinion. You know, I don't understand. Well, maybe I do understand. I do understand that that is a cult kind of attitude when you throw somebody off for a different attitude, when you say, well, he's, he's just talking about as far as you do your own thing and we'll do our thing and this is, this is what we find out. I mean, it's a difference of opinion. But you really showed me that you don't think that it's a cult by being a cult, by acting like a cult. And that is if I don't agree with you, you throw me off. Fantastic. I'm really great. But you keep on, Leo. I gave him a compliment as far as everything. He's very, very, he's a know-it-all and sounds like a know-it-all, but he's very informative. I agree with that. And being new to prepping and things like that, I don't like somebody saying, well, you know, obviously didn't listen to Jack. You obviously didn't listen to Jack. Well, you know, drink your own Kool-Aid. You all have a wonderful and blessed day. Now, I'm going to tell you a secret. I hear uh, by audio and text far worse than this every day from people. I played this one because it's not directed at me. So it's a little bit more fun for me, and I think Oxymoron is going to be laughing hard at this one. Um, so basically what the caller is saying is I joined the Survival Podcast Zello group, and everybody in the Survival Podcast Zello group keeps talking about the guy and what he says and the Survival Podcast in the Survival Podcast Zello group So I didn't like it, and I said he's like a cult leader, and I kept complaining that they kept bringing up the show, the Survival Podcast, in the Survival Podcast cello group. And since I kept bitching about it and, and, and insulting people, they threw me out. And it's not fair, because I should be able to disagree. Um, it's I know I've said it, but it's the Survival Podcast cello group, dude. That's what it is. It's for discussing this stuff right here from the vantage point of being part of the community of the Survival Podcast, which by the very nature of it, since I created it, I guess I would be, I guess you'd call me the leader of it, but it's certainly not a cult leader. And all of these little satellite communities that spring off, if you'll notice, do cult leaders let their satellite communities run themselves? Yeah, uh, they really don't, so... Zello Group runs itself. I have no say. I created it. I started it. I got people into it. I got some moderators going. And much like the forum, I said, it's yours now. Go run with it. Occasionally I pop in. I say hello. I answer some questions. I talk to some people. Don't call me and bitch to me about what happens to you there, though. They made their own rules. They made their own rules, and they enforce them, and they're allowed to do that because it's a private community designed to discuss The Survival Podcast. And I, I wanted to play this because sometimes I know I come across as a dick. Uh, I may respond to somebody in a way where people are like, man, do you really have to be that way? Again, I deal with worse than this, way worse than this. 
two, three, four examples minimum a day. There's days where it's a dozen people pissed off of some various things, and I'll tell you what, it's amazing how many times they got their ass banned from the Facebook group, they got their ass banned from the forum, or they got their ass banned from the Zello group. And you know what? I don't have a damn thing to say about that because I don't control it. I don't control those three satellite communities because Jack Spirico's not a cult leader. There's no people living on my farm doing slave labor for me. There's no people leaving their family to join my, my, you know, group. There's nobody that's been disassociated from their family. You know, you can get Scientology if you want a cult. We're not a cult here. But this type of shit and far worse is why sometimes you think, man, he was really rough on that person. Because when you deal with stuff like this over and over and over again, eventually somebody gets snapped at. And I'd like to apologize if you're ever one of those people who got snapped at. And I'd like to kind of show you how I won the Internet two days ago. I won the Internet. I was responding to a comment on YouTube, and instead of being nasty about it, and actually the guy that made the comment thought it was hilarious when, when he finally read it, um, and he, he also acknowledged that I won the Internet. And you'll see what I mean by the second. But let me read, so it was, a, it was a video showing updates to my aquaponics system, and I have some deep water raft in there. And we actually use foam board insulation for raft material, uh, the kind that you put in a wall, the kind I just talked about putting on the floor for the gentleman in Florida if he was going to make an insulated uh, area inside the garage. And uh, here's what he said. He said, uh, hi, Jack, is that a proper, 100% legit aquatic polystyrene raft, or have you compromised with a cheaper version? Cheers in advance, details, man, I need details. Now, look, I know where he's going, and I've been dealing with this with my systems for so long. I, about once a day, I get a comment from somebody telling me all my fish and plants are going to die on my aquatic system, And uh, they tell me that because my aquatic, not the aquatics, but the aquatic system with the garden ponds and all is made from galvanized tanks, and the zinc is going to kill everything. And it don't matter how many times you tell them, the system's been there for three years, all the plants and fish are fine, they're still going to die any minute, and I'm still waiting for it to happen. So I deal with this constant, this obsessive need of people to critique everything, every minute detail. I got people bitching right now because I'm feeding my ducks organic baby spinach from the surplus of the stuff we buy at the store. Because we buy these big giant packages. Why are you growing your own greens? When I was a kid, we used to go out and chop dandelions up. You know what? I have a life, and I have a job, and I have a business, and I put out hours and hours of content every day to support that. I got 65 people that are going to be at my house in a week and a freaking half that I'm still trying to get ready for. I'm trying to rebuild my aquaponics system. I'm brooding baby ducks. I don't have time to grow them freaking lettuce. Okay? That's how you start to feel. But instead of coming off that way with this gentleman who, again, want to know, is your aquaponics polys 100% legit? Because they're expensive. Did you compromise? I know he's worried about leaching and stupid shit like that, so here's what I said. Actually, no. Our rafts are made from baby seals that are beaten with a club. Their fat is then converted into a foam. We then ship them to Fukushima. We have them bathed in radiation. After that, the foam is shipped to mainland China, where prepubescent teens are beaten with whips as they fashion the baby seal radioactive foam into mats. They are then brought to the U.S. and taken to Kansas soy fields, sprayed with Roundup. After that, they are shipped to a major urban center and used to beat social justice warriors. And after that, they are sent to our farm, carried to us by old trucks that burn sulfur and coal as fuel. Yes, I, Jack Spirico, two days ago, 
won the internet. That was the winning comment on the internet that day. And uh, yeah, he went back to he's worried about leeching and stuff like that. He said it was funny, and and I'm going to try when I when I'm just at the edge of my rope with something to use humor and sarcasm like that. So hopefully nobody gets butt hurt with that. But dude that called in for this call, huh, again, you're calling the speak pipe. Oxymoron, Leo, unless I put you on the air, they can't hear you. And when you join a group about something, that's what they're going to discuss. Imagine if you had joined a group about chess, and then you got pissed off because everybody just wanted to talk about chess, and you told them they were a bunch of zombies that couldn't think about anything about chess, but you had joined the chess club where they're supposed to talk about and play chess, but you don't want to do it anymore, so you start you know, coming off and insulting people. Yeah. That's what you did, and that's why you got banned. And sometimes that's just how the world works. I hope you're not hiding in a safe space somewhere. Uh, <laughs> anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, this is Iron Teacup, and I've got a question for you. Um, I'm looking at starting up a magazine slash online blog, and uh, I was curious uh, what sort of revenue models you had. Uh, that might be interesting. I know there's, you know, whatever you have going on with the subscription. Uh, just trying to get a brainstorm going so that way I could have something interesting going on. Uh, look forward to your ideas. I know it's kind of vague, but, uh, this is, I know you're good at, uh, coming up with a lot of ideas that are potentially off the wall that I might not have thought about. Anyways, thank you very much. Talk to you later. Okay, well, I mean, we've actually talked about this an awful lot, but I think this is, for many people, this is a cart before the horse to some degree, because it's a good idea to have some idea what you're going to do for a revenue model with a content-based business um, going into it so that you can build it to fit that. But I'm going to take you back to June of 2008. Jack Spirico has gotten a client in his design consultancy and marketing business that says, I want a blog and I want a podcast for financial services. No, it was not John Pugliano long before I met John Pugliano. And so I bid the job and we won the job and I take the stuff back to my web developer and say, we need to do this. Here's the spec. And he said, I don't know how to do the podcast part with the RSV. I can probably figure it out, but I'm like, you got a whole bunch of other shit to do. You just build this. And I'll go figure out the podcast thing and tell you how to plug it into it, because I'm sure it can't be hard. So I go out and I find that WordPress will natively support podcasts, but it's not really the best, and there's some plugins and stuff like that. So I decide what I'll do is I'll set up a little blog, and I'll do a podcast on my way to and from work. Because I'd kind of gotten to the point where I didn't really want to be in corporate America, and I was looking for something else to do, and I thought, you know what, Jack, you're a good public speaker. You spent 20 years of your life doing public speaking, keynote addresses, things like that. You're a natural teacher, and you learn a lot of shit, and you love self-sufficiency. So why don't you just give that a shot? So I started doing that, and after about a week, I didn't want to punch a hole in the wall when I got home anymore, because I had this outlet, this venting, and people were starting to listen already. And I said to myself, Jack, you know what? This is your ticket. This is the thing you're going to build, and you're going to build it up, and it's going to become your way of walking away from corporate America. And 18 months later, I walked away from corporate America, and one year after that, my wife left her job and hasn't worked a full-time job since. It took two and a half years to replace both of our incomes, and I had a good income. Now, do you know, what, do you know why that happened? 
Once I knew I was on to something, I focused 100% on building the content and the community and the vibe and the marketing angle, and I figured out really quick, I can't build this because, you know, the hype was starting to build in the prepping market and all, so that was good because I had a place to pull people from, but I couldn't build it on that because when the hype went away, and it has, I wanted to still be here and still be growing, and we are. So I focused all on that, on delivering the best platform I could to the people who were looking what I had to offer. And as that built up, then I determined a pathway to monetization once I had the audience. And I found my, my way into the, the, the membership program, which is my number one uh, revenue source. I make more money on that than anything else we do, more than sponsorships, more than affiliate links, more than, and I make more on that than any of the little side things that I have going on as well. That might not be the case for everyone. Brian Black, a good friend of mine that runs ITS Tactical, probably the most successful blog in the tactical space online today, started his journey exactly one year after mine, one year after mine. And Brian, one year after I left, my job quit. He was an independent web designer, quit taking new clients. It took him one year. It took him the same amount of time. It took him a year and a half to get it built to the place where it could provide him enough income that it could be his sole source of income. And one year later, one year after mine, his wife Kelly quit her job and went to work for him. Same path. Very, very different, though. Brian does have a membership program. I'm sure he sells a lot of memberships, and I'm sure it's a key revenue component for him. But I can tell you for a fact, his merchandise, his tactical bags, his lock picks, his training gear, his, all that stuff is the lion's share of his revenue. That required him to build a different style of business. But it is very accurate to call ITS Tactical an online magazine. Very accurate. But he has he has a significant number of employees because they get orders in every day. They have to be packed and shipped out. Uh, he does a lot of video work that's high high production value video work that's not like adjunctive stuff that I do. It's a key component. So he has video production and things like that going on. So we built very similar businesses in the exact same time frame with very different revenue models. But Brian didn't think, well... You know, three weeks into this, I'm going to build the most awesome messenger bag on the planet and sell it for $400 and people will buy it because it's going to be that good. Brian found his way into a point where he couldn't find one that he thought was that good, so he built one. And then he said, this is how I'm going to monetize. And that's the approach you need to take with monetization of content-driven businesses. There are people who all their content is on YouTube, and they make a good living just off YouTube, just off the ads. Now, you've got to have a lot of people watching you to do that. Uh, as big as my YouTube channel is, it makes me about, it was, well, before I started this main onslaught of videos and went and monetized, went back and monetized all the old stuff, I was making like 100 bucks. I think last month I made like 380 bucks on YouTube. But that's not walk away from work money, but that's a decent chunk of, and I think I'll do better this month. Because I finally like actually started focusing on let's make sure we monetize that. Let's let's not hate money. That's one of my big thing is don't hate money. You go, Jack, you're hating money over there because you're doing the work anyway. Why don't you optimize it so that you'll make the money? Um, but I know people that make $100,000 a year off YouTube ads. So most of them didn't think, I'm going to make $100,000 a year off YouTube ads. They did YouTube for one reason or another, began to get a monetization flow out of it, and then optimize that. So... It's it's not about this is the specific 
you know, pathway to optimization. And, and I would, I would caution everybody out there. That I'm going to do outdoor self-sufficiency, whatever, from going the route of being another run, an also ran. I think that in the world of like sports and outdoors and, and, and homesteading and stuff, it's, it's getting more and more the case that you're better off picking something very specific and going deep with it. If you look at one of my favorite YouTubers is named Rob Bob. He has Rob Bob's Backyard Farming. He is into backyard farming and very, very heavy in aquaponics. He has like five times more subscribers than I do. And I think he has, and he has, there's a thing called Patreon, which I don't even know anything about, but it's basically people that support you financially because they want to. I don't think it's like a membership like I have or something like that, where it's, it's kind of through a, a thing where people can just be kind of like, like I'm going to sponsor you because I like what you're doing and I don't want you to go away, that type of thing. And um, he seems to make a decent living for himself off his YouTube channel. I doubt he really knew he was going to do that at the very beginning, but he has his own flair and his own way of doing things. And he's he's deep into that niche. So it's not just this broad spectrum, which is what TSP is, but that works for me. And it might work for you. But... How you do it is going to say a lot about that. There's a big difference in a written thing and an audio thing. The reason I love audio is, is not just because I, I, I enjoy doing it, and I do. It's because of its power. There's people, you're listening to me right now, you're driving down the road. You can't read a blog while you're driving down the road. At least you shouldn't. There's people right now, you're in a gym working out, you're listening to me. You're going, he's looking at me. He's, no, he's not looking at me. Yeah, you're working on your garden and you're listening to me. Shit, he's looking at me too, right? I mean, I know that. I, because audio is one of those things that you actually can do and you can actually take in the information while you're doing something else. It is the only form of media that really gives you 100% of what it has to offer while something else is going on. You know, there's some of you that have kind of mindless jobs like collating, right? I'm not going to do another pop culture insertion today, but while she collates, she can listen to the radio at a reasonable volume, right? So um, that type of thing where it's like it's kind of like work that's just you've done it so long, it's just almost mindless, and you listen to me at work with your headphones or with the radio at a reasonable volume or something like that. And, and so audio has that ability to do that, and uh, that's why I think it's a strong thing for going wide the more you get into things that require individual attention the more you got to get into the thing that the person loves because the, I, I guarantee you a ton of people that watch rob bob they are building aquaponic systems and they don't want to miss one thing he does because all of the things he's learned over the years he's saving them from mistakes and when that guy realizes i just didn't buy a hundred dollars worth of fittings Because he told me about these other fittings that I can get for 15 bucks. I'm going to Patreon and giving him 20 bucks. He totally earned it right there, plus everything. I'm doing that, right? That's, that's how you build real value in new media. That's why people join MSB. A lot of people, great, they get discounts, but at some point they just go, I've just gotten too much out of this. I've learned too much from Jack and his guests. So, yeah, I'm going to support him because I don't want this to go away. It's a new economic model and and you need to, no matter how you capitalize on it the most important thing is you understand that's what's going on it's not like a subscription to outdoor life magazine who the hell is outdoor life magazine you might know some writers and stuff in there or whatever but who is it but if you say who is jacks who who is the survival podcast who's actually behind it you know me 
When you look at Rob Bob, you know it's him because his name's on it. You look at ITS Tactical, there's a big team there, but you know who Brian Black is. The, the, this is the new monetization model, is a personal relationship across the world with a person that you actually engage with, appreciate, and want to do business with. That's the key. Hope you enjoyed it, and uh, if you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that here, of course, is by doing your Amazon shopping at the Survival Podcast through tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. When you get there, you'll see a link. That link will take you to the Amazon deals of the day. You can see the best deals that are on Amazon. And the other thing that you can do is uh, is just do your Amazon shopping to support us through that. The other thing you can see is all the reviews that we've done. And I have new products out every day on the Survival Podcast for you. Today I have fish hooks. Boring, right? Eagle Claw O'Shaughnessy fishing hook assortment. Uh, it's a pretty good assortment. Sizes 1 to 6. These are larger hooks. And I put this up for a couple reasons. One, you haven't seen fish hooks on T-Spaz before because most of the time you're better off going to Walmart or any store that sells fishing equipment to buy hooks. They're just not a good deal in general on Amazon. These are. These are as good a price as you'll get if you go buy them at Gander Mountain or Walmart or something like that. Um, and then it's also kind of a specialized product in a way, even though it's kind of like an old standard. So the O'Shaughnessy is basically a J-hook, a standard-looking fish hook made out of a heavy, thick-gauge wire um, and a nickel steel, and it's got a big eye. In other words, the hole you stick the line through is relatively large for the hook, so it's a strong hook. Very, very popular for cut and live bait, especially in salt water, and I do use them for that. But what I really use them for, to me, they are the best hook for trot lining, jug lining and limb lining for catfish. Because they're a thick wire with a big barb, they hold really well. Um, because they're thick and they're a nickel steel, you, you use your limb lines and your trot lines or your jug lines, you put them out, you reel them in, you put them in your case, you take them home, the hooks are wet, they're going to rust. These things last a couple seasons. I've used kales, uh, they seem to have a little bit better hookup rate, but you know, halfway through the season you're replacing all the hooks. These things last longer. Uh, and because they have that big eye, they're easy to get a split ring on so you can put a, a, a snap swivel uh, onto them. And then they can be attached and detached from your various equipment, which is really helpful in a way I'll talk about in just a second. But I always use a swivel whenever I'm doing fishing for catfish, with, especially with something like a limb line or a jug line. Because when they get hooked, they start spinning. And if you don't have a swivel on there, they screw everything, everything up. The reason I like snap swivel with a monofilament leader and a slip ring is that way when I catch a fish and I pull a jug line in, I'm not there unhooking the fish. I just open the snap swivel, take it off. I've got the fish by the string. I'm not even worrying about getting finned. This is assuming he's big enough to keep. And I just set him in the live well with the hook in his mouth. You know, it doesn't matter. He's fine. I take and I have pre-baited new ones and I have a pre-baited new line. Put it back on the snap swivel, drop it in the water, go to my next one. Same thing with limb lines. So you're just, and if the bait's gone, same thing. You take the old one off, hook it on the side of the boat, get a new one, put it on, boom. It's fast, easy. Then you go back and set up new baits for your next run. And that snap swivel empowers that. Then when you get, you know, get some downtime, when you're waiting to make your next run, you take your fish, you take your pliers, you pull your hooks out of them, toss them back in a live well, put them in the cooler, whatever you're going to do. 
rebate those hooks, get them ready for your next run. And these are the hooks that I use when I do that. And there are a hundred of them, they're eight bucks. Like I said, they're a good deal. You can learn more at tspaz.com. You can always find all of our reviews there just by clicking the link to see them. Next up, the ammo, not the ammo, the, the, uh, the song of the day today. The song of the day today is, uh, by the Kinks. Bet you've heard it. You really got me now. What I wanted to talk about, though, with the Kinks is uh, shortly after this song went to number one, they were banned from touring in America, which was the biggest music market in the world. Probably still is, I think. And they were part of the British invasion with the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks. And no one can really specifically say why they were banned. Um, they're kind of edgy rock for the time, I guess, a little bit, but no more so than the Beatles or the Stones or other bands that were out that were foreign bands. Um, I've never heard any accusations that they were communists and kicked out due to McCarthyism, but they were banned for, I think it was four or six years from touring in America during the height of their success. And I think they're one of those bands that could have been, you know, as big as the Beatles. But they weren't because of what happened to them. And it's a cool rocking song. I mean, I, I don't think there's many people out there who go, oh, I've never heard that song. I don't even think many people out there go, I don't like that song. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, you can tune back in tomorrow. We'll have the expert counsel show for you. i got a lot of good stuff lined up for tomorrow's show. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.